following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Let's continue in our, our teaching series as we continue in the book of Ruth through this redemption series. Uh, this morning brings us to chapter 3. And so uh, we have some reading here. Why don't we turn to chapter 3 in Ruth? If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the, on the rack in front of you, in the seat in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, um, please receive this as a gift from us to you. Uh, this can be yours. You can take it home and, uh, and use it as, as, uh, as your, your Bible. And so uh, receive that. Well, kind of where we've been real quickly, chapter 1 is focused on Naomi and what God has, is beginning to do through her and through her life in Ruth. Chapter 2 brings together a new spotlight where it focuses on Boaz and Ruth and their encounter. And it shines upon God's unfailing love and his hesed love that he has worked in them and how he continues to bring uh, them up into his purposes. And chapter 3 is going to spotlight now Boaz and his character and how he is destined for a crucial role, role in the story of God and in the story of Ruth. So we'll read chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a, young, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let, it, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn from how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest but we'll set a, settle the matter today. All right, things are getting interesting in the book of Ruth. For those of you who watch the show 24, uh, you may be fans of the show, you know what I mean when I say that this book and this chapter is starting to feel a lot like uh, the epi an episode of 24. For those who don't know, an episode of 24 is based on, basically, 
based on 60 minutes. One episode is 60 minutes. There's 24 episodes. So a whole season represents a real life, no, it's not real life. It's a, a <laughs> real time, <laughs> no, one's, no one's day is that busy. A real time um, day uh, in the life of, of, of one man. Chapter one covers ten, over 10 years of the story of these characters. Chapter two covers several weeks, maybe even a few months. And chapter three covers the amount of time from dusk till dawn. And the story is speeding up. It, it's coming to a climax of the point of the story, of the plot. And this chapter is packed with drama and intrigue. And you're thinking, there, how much stuff is happening in such a short amount of time? I mean, like 24, there's not a single like, month, any given month of my life that is as busy as Jack Bauer's hour. And you look at this, it's like, what is going on? There's so much going on in just these several hours of the life of these people. It's because there's something the narrator wants us to see. It wants us to see how it's, how it's picking up, how it is speeding ahead and coming to a point of climax. And it centers on the development of Boaz as a redeemer. And he, as a redeemer, this term as a redeemer, has a tremendous amount of significance to this whole story and the plot. It's crucial to understand, what is a redeemer? What does he do? Why is this in place? See, God gave a provision in the law to act as a, as a demonstration of his kindness, of his love for his people, and the continuation of God's family. When God's people were called into existence, he established them as his people, and he gave them a new identity. And with that new identity came spiritual and material blessings, and the two biggest blessings for God's people were land and a family. And so think bad things would happen, people would die, tragedy would come upon people in a nation, and God would put into his law safeguards so that his promises would come true. That no matter what happened, his people would have their land, and no matter what happened, they would, they would have their family. And God promised that there would be an eternal king that would come from your line, from your family, and he will... He will sit on the throne and he will, he will rule over all of creation. This is because God loved his people. And when a family fell in need, a close family member was called to come in and to help out, to volunteer to help, to become that person's redeemer. The Bible uses that word for that. God makes us in his image. God calls himself our redeemer. And making us in his image, he wants us to do the same, to come to people's help, to, to, to rescue them, to deliver them, to, to rescue them from their tragedy. If a family member was found in debt after the death of, of somebody and unable to pet it, pay it, and maybe they were put in slavery until they could pay off the debt, a family member, a family redeemer would come in and pay that debt. If a family's property was repossessed, a redeemer would come in and buy back that land so the land would stay in the family. The family redeemer says something amazing about God, doesn't it? You think about this, that God would do that, that he would plan on this, that he would provide these safeguards for his people. The God of the Bible is one who creates and sustains and governs all of his promises. And he says that these are my promises and they will come true and all things will serve this purpose of of my glory and my promises coming through. I will be faithful. 
and nothing will thwart my plans. I will never fail. And so if you've been following along in this story or know the story of Ruth, you have Naomi and Ruth. Their husbands are dead. They are without a future, without a land. They are in a culture that is centered and dominated by family and land ownership, and they have neither. And Naomi says, you know, you have a rich uncle. (laughs) Wink, wink. And she actually does much more than wink, wink, as you look in verses 1 through 6. She says, I've got a plan. Go get that cute shirt that you just got. Go put on your best eyelashes. Douse yourself with just... With, with perfume, wait till after he's had something to drink, plenty to drink. He's tired after the day. Sneak in at night and see where it takes you. This is exactly what's going on. Go get mommy, go get mommy something. Go get mommy a sugar daddy. That's what she's saying, okay? This is Naomi. <laughs> now, you've heard of Match.com. This is like threshingfloor.com right, right here. That's my intellectual property. Don't steal it. What person could miss the message of this opening paragraph? This is why we dismiss the little kids, actually. (laughs) It's nighttime. There's good food. There's good wine. There's physical closeness of two single people. There's perfume. Have you ever watched a perfume commercial? Have you ever recognized the names of perfume? Obsession, irresistible, euphoria, poison. I mean... (laughs) The narrator of this story wants us to be focusing on one thing, and it's the thing that Naomi is specifically focusing on. This is, it's a tailored atmosphere. It's a, it's a tailored situation. Could this really be the wise counsel of Naomi, of this godly woman who fears God and knows God? Could this really be the plan of a, of a woman who is thinking about what is honoring to God? Wouldn't a man find himself tempted in this situation? And isn't that exactly what we're led to think about? That's, what w- that, that's ho- the whole part of the plan. That this situation would be fabricated and created to accomplish one thing, marriage. And this chapter isn't about Naomi, as we will find, and it's not about Ruth. It's about seeing how Boaz now responds to the situation that he finds himself in. And he reveals in how he responds that he is the perfect redeemer for Ruth. That he is exactly what he needs, that, that she needs. And I want to explain this character, this characteristic of Boaz, uh, in terms of his commitment to a few things as we walk through this passage. His commitment to certain things, even in the midst of moral temptation. And so here are some of these commitments. And we'll just get into this and walk through the passage. The first commitment that Boaz has, I think, is, I will not run ahead of God. Consider these verses in verse 6 through 10. And I want to I read that again. <clears throat> so he went down, she went down, just as her mother told her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went, down, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. She came and uncovered his feet. And he woke up and was startled. And he says, who are you? I'm paraphrasing. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. And here he says, may you be blessed by the Lord. You've been working hard. Think of this. You've been working hard in the field all day. It's late at night. You're in for the night, and you're tired. You eat. You have plenty to drink. You've had a good meal, some good wine. You lay down under the stars. You feel as a blessed man, and you're unwinding, and suddenly you're startled. Someone is laying at your feet in the middle of the night, 
you're waking up. You're awakened. And it's a beautiful young woman, and she smells terrific. Consider how you are when you are awakened in the middle of the night, when you're startled. Cohen has this new thing. My, my three-year-old son, he's in a new phase where in the middle of the night, he gets up and walks around the house and turns on all the lights <laughs> and opens doors and slams them. It's just, and every time he does this, I, I have no idea what's going on. And my tendency, when I am awakened and startled in the middle of the night, I, I run towards the noise, like no matter what, with no discernment at all. And right out, my, out we get on my bed, there's a dresser. And I can't tell you how many times I run <laughs> right into the dresser and just like stub my toe. I wear contacts at night, and so I actually can't see, but it's just, I just run in the direction of the sound. It's called being sleep drunk. I mean, it's, it's a real thing. <laughs> Google it. I mean, and that's, and that's how I feel when I am awakened in the middle of the night. What do you do? I mean, do you hide? Do you scream? Do you stay completely still and hope that the sound will go away? Do you convince yourself that you're imagining things and just try to go back to bed? As Boaz speaks with Ruth, you can tell that he has found what he is looking for. There is something here that he is also expressing to her that you are what I've been looking for. You are what I've been hoping God would bring for me. And he could easily take advantage of this situation and take advantage of her. He's a red-blooded, testosterone-filled, powerful man. But even before he has the ability to fully awaken and come to his senses, God is at the center of his thoughts. The hallmark of our faith is that we act biblically when we encounter unfamiliar circumstances. Where, while he, con he continues to be this man who's tired and he's in this, this stupor or whatever, and he, God is still on his mind. He hopes that God's giving him something he wants. He hopes that God's giving him this special person. But he doesn't move ahead of God. He does not assume that, that God is giving this situation for a reason, but he waits and he allows God, he trusts God enough to allow his plans to work out without running ahead of God. He maintains this trust in God without speeding up things when it's happening. And, and because of Boaz's commitment to not run ahead of what God is doing, I believe that he is able to submit even his natural, his natural tendencies, his natural temptations, his natural instincts, and his personal desires to whatever God's will is for his life. So even in the midst of temptation for moral compromise, even in the midst of an unfamiliar and startling situation, Boaz is able to submit his will to God and say, I'm going to wait on you. You're on the forefront of my mind. I'm going to see what you do. Can we say this? Can we say that we act this same way in a similar situation, that we, that we wait on God, that we don't rush ahead of God? The way that we go about doing this, about waiting with God, walking in step with God without lagging behind or without going way too far ahead is to submit ourselves to his word, to saturate ourselves with his word so that in any situation we train ourselves that God would be on the forefront of our mind in any situation. It, it's about being biblically poised under pressure. It's not something that comes natural to us. We usually 
trust in our natural instincts and whatever instinct is right there, that's what we react to and then we have to backpedal later and, and we have to ask for po uh, forgiveness and we have to recognize where we've done something wrong. We have to go and repent and confess of something. But what if we could get better at that? That we would be poised in when we're startled, in new situations, and God would be on the forefront of our mind. And only this comes from the Holy Spirit strengthening us and through the careful study of God's word. You know, reading the Bible and, and actually reading through and asking, God, what do you love so that I can love those things? What do you hate so that I can hate those things? I want to train my mind. I want to train my instincts. I want to train my, my thoughts to think like you think so that when that opportunity comes, I'm right there and ready to be in step with you because I trust you and I trust that that all of those things that happen, everything that you have said to me is for my ultimate good and your glory. So the key to this character is that he has committed himself to not doing anything that would compromise the glory of God in his life. And this is what makes him a worthy man. Beginning of chapter 2 says that he is a worthy man. Here's a second commitment that I see that Boaz demonstrates in his character. It's like the first, but I think it takes a step further. His commitment is, I will not mistake temptation for opportunity. I am lonely. God knows that I'm lonely. He doesn't like that I'm lonely. He desires companionship. <laughs> and I wake up, and there's this girl at my feet. God is providing a, a door God is providing an opportunity to answer my prayer. But Boaz is thinking, just because this is happening does not mean that God is opening a door. My first commitment to interpreting God's word, to interpreting how I must act, is not, are not my circumstances, but his word. Whenever we're asking God to show us a sign, I know we've all done this, I've done this, you've done it. God, if, if you really want me to do this, just show me a sign. And usually we want him to show us a sign beyond what he has already showed us. And, and Jesus says in the New Testament to people who are asking for signs, he says, I will not give this generation a sign beyond what I've already given them. I will not give them a sign beyond the sign of Jonah. You see, when we are asking God to show us a sign beyond what he's already shown us, we're asking him to love us less. We're asking God to love us in a cheap sense. We're actually, actually asking God to to make us idol worshipers in a way. Because we want God to cater to, help me to find love, help me to find peace, help me to find stability in something other than you. Convince me that you love me beyond your love for me. How do I go about knowing God's will for my life? Have you guys ever asked that, your, that question? God, what is your will for my life? I've asked that. I know you've asked it. And that's actually a question that people ask me a lot. How do I know God's will for my life? And it's a tough question to ask and to answer. And I think a better but a lesser question, but a better question to ask is, how does God's word apply to what's going on in my life right now? Because we always want to know these big picture things. What's God's will? What's that magic thing? What's that magic situation that I need to be pursuing? And we're rarely ever come to a place of real convincing answer from God. But I believe that if we ask a different question, and that question is, God, how does your word apply to what I'm encountering right now? 
you will find peace, you will find satisfaction, you will find a lot better answer than you've been finding with the other questions. And it's a lot more work to ask that question, is it? Isn't it? I've been reading a book called Faithful Gone by Sinclair Ferguson to really walk through the book of Ruth and to kind of create, cultivate my heart as I'm thinking about God's faithfulness. And, and, he, and he uses this quote, he says, never mistake temptation for opportunity. And it's what Adam and Eve in the garden failed to do. It's actually, they, they mistook temptation for opportunity. God had told them something, told them not to eat. He put the law in their, in their life and, and, and called them to be obedient. And Eve was tempted, and they were tempted together. And, and Eve started to think, well, maybe God didn't mean what he said he mean. Maybe he forgot to, maybe he neglected to think about, I might be hungry today. And I'm hungry, and here's an opportunity. Maybe this is what he really wanted me to do. And so she mistook temptation for opportunity because she neglected to listen to God's word. And we are masters of proving true whatever we want to believe. There's a study out there to prove everything. If you want to prove something, someone will do a study and someone will prove it. And then they make a pill for it. Everybody, you can prove anything that you want to prove. You could convince yourself that anything is true. When we depart from God's word, we can prove that everything is beneficial for us and nothing is harmful. And that is the harm of neglecting to be bound to the word of God and moving according to the word of God. That is, that is the key to resisting temptation. That is the key to not falling into confusion when things happen in our life, is to stick close to God's word because it is clear, it is for us. And when we ask God, what does your word have to say with what I'm going through right now? He has answers for us. And we can trust those things. The third commitment that Boaz makes is, I will not neglect my responsibilities. When it comes to living out a life of biblical faithfulness, I mean, there is no app for that, I guess. There's no quick thing to do to figure out, okay, how do we live out a life of biblical faithfulness? It requires this increasing commitment to God, increasing affection for Him in our heart, so that biblical wisdom becomes something instinctive. We start to think less and less like, like ourselves, and we begin to think more and more like God. And when that happens, that's when you will just be you will be so surprised. You'll be floored. You'll say, I can't believe, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I'm growing. I can't believe I'm starting to think like God. I can't believe I'm, I'm starting to be wise. I can't believe that people around me are coming to me and asking me for advice. I can't believe that, that I am resisting pitfalls. I can't believe that I actually feel more joy and peace and closeness with God. These are the things that happen. We sow these things in our life, and it, and it bears fruit. Boaz seems to have a clearer idea of trust in God than Naomi does and how he works. And have our, having already spoken kindness to Ruth, he again speaks to her. He does it again. And, and what he says, he shows that he is so keenly aware of his responsibility to protect his own integrity, God's integrity, as well as the respect of Ruth and Naomi. And look at these verses in, in 10, uh, verse 10 through 13. And he said, May be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. 
in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let, it, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. He does not say, he does not wake up and start and say, what are you thinking? Get out of here. Do you realize how this looks? Do you realize what people will say? He does not take advantage of her. We see this tremendous commitment to honor her and honor himself and honor God. He speaks with tenderness to her and graciousness that shows that he is the, the kind of man that she actually needs. He is the kind of man for her that will not compromise his integrity or hers. See, where some might expect this story to unfold, you see this is walking into a very precarious and steamy situation, and you don't really know how it's going to end, and you, you might expect Ruth to begin, as the sun comes up, the walk of shame. Right? What happened to Ruth? What did they do on the threshing floor? but you see something very, very different. You see a walk of honor. You see R Ruth coming into a very morally compromised situation with a ton of temptation, leaving as a woman adorned with honor because of Boaz. He is telling her, I understand your needs. I understand the panic that you are in. I understand that you need something right now, and without it might be without hope altogether. And I understand why you did this. It's not right, but I understand why you came, and I'm opening up my heart to you, and I'm pouring out my grace to you. You can trust in God. You don't need this situation to be created for you. You can trust in what God is doing. You can trust in his abundance, in his faithfulness, in his grace to you. And let me show you a sign of that. He gives her six measures of barley. Open up the cloak that you came with, and he just heaps it on her, and you give this picture, and again, we talked last week about this, this ephah of barley, and how it's just a tremendous amount, and commentators have been very confused by how to interpret this passage, because it's, it's an obscene amount of barley. You picture this beautiful young woman walking away, just like an, kind of a spectacle of town, just like heaping all this stuff, like, like a mule walking through the town hunched over with all this barley around her back. Just an obscene amount for any person to carry. And she comes home, and, and Naomi, the mother-in-law, says, and I can tell she was rehearsing this, so how did your date go? Did you fare well, my daughter? She probably stayed up all night. And Ruth is able to say, look at what he has given us. It's a lot. It's abundant. We are cared for. Instead of, I feel ashamed. Look at how I've been compromised. Look at how I've been taken advantage of. But look at how I've been honored. And in a picture of Ruth's backbreaking entrance back to Naomi, we see this loud and clear that Boaz has the provision, he has the power. And he has the resolve to take care of them. He understands his responsibility, and he is committed to seeing it through. So this 
application, the best application for chapter 3 is not to see how we now must somehow muster up these commitments in our life and these characteristics in our life to do these three things, but to see how Christ has, he is the final picture of Boaz. And as Boaz is a type of redeemer for Ruth, he is also a type of redeemer for us. Boaz is playing an essential role beyond the story to show us God's ultimate purpose in sending Jesus to the cross. And it is good for us to see this connection with Jesus. In the story of Ruth, we see a man who saves a woman and provides for her needs so that, so that he could live in communion with her. Communion that is honoring, that is mutually edifying. And this is our engagement with Christ. This is our engagement. The Bible calls believers the, the bride of Christ. And it's maybe misrepresented today in, in some ways where, uh, maybe you've said this, and I don't mean to be crass, I don't mean to make you feel weird, but you know, when we say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dating Jesus right now, a, a guy would never say that. I mean, a guy would never, a guy does not think like this. And so engagement and being the bride of Christ has been kind of pigeonholed to something only that women engage in. But the picture of Scripture as, as us as the bride of Christ is not one of gender to gender, but one of position, that God has the provision, that he has the resolve, that he has the power to engage us to him, even as outcasts, and one of commitment, like a husband to a wife. It is good for us to see our relationship with Christ in this way. To find engagement to Christ is not to enter into this romantic relationship where we just look up at Christ and all he does is tell us nice things about us. Our engagement to Christ has to do with Christ's commitment to safeguard the members of his family, his most beloved members, no matter what the cost, to pay our debt, to deliver us from slavery, to protect us from evil and judgment. He has the guts and resolve to do it all at the cost of his own life so that his plan of relationship with us would be accomplished and complete, and he does this through Jesus in such a way that he eliminates every single other means of finding that connection to him anywhere else. There is no other means there is no other way that we can find engagement, that we can find ourselves in relationship with God where it's one of commitment, provision, joy, peace, everlasting kindness and love. There is no way we can find forgiveness of sins and salvation beyond Jesus. He is our Redeemer. This is how God ultimately brings salvation to his people, not through Adam who failed, not through Boaz who, although a worthy man, a sinful man, an imperfect, broken man, but through Jesus, who the Bible calls the second Adam, who the Bible calls our ultimate redeemer. And in the garden, God made a covenant with Adam, and Adam failed. And this is the reason that we all fail, that we all sin, that we all make mistakes. We've done it multiple times, even today already. We have somehow neglected to honor God and maintain a perfect relationship with him. So God the Father made a covenant with God the Son. That Jesus would be our kinsman redeemer. 
our rich relatives. Not sparing any expense, even the expense of his very life. And so we learn to trust in him. We learn to rest in him as our redeemer. Look at what Jesus did. Look at how this picture relates to Christ. Jesus did not run beyond God, his father. He submitted himself. And even in multiple times in scripture, Jesus says, I, I do only what I see my father doing. Whatever he does, I observe it, and then I do that. I wait on him. I walk with him. I listen to his voice, and I respond to his voice. I do not make decisions on my own, but I submit myself to God's will for me. I listen to him, and I obey only as he speaks. He didn't misinterpret temptation for opportunity. He didn't make this mistake. Look at all the countless opportunities that Jesus had to become great in man's eyes. People wanted to make him king. They wanted to usher him in and say, okay, you're here. You are ours. We receive you. Be everything. There are so many times that people brought Christ away to, to be something that he was not called to be. And you know, that is why Jesus departed. You see, as you read through the Gospels, why did he leave? They were just about to worship him, and he left. He hid. He went to be alone. And Jesus said, because my time has not yet come. He was tempted, but he didn't misrepresent that, that temptation for God's opportunity. He listened to him. He was focused on the cross. And lastly, he did not neglect his responsibility, but he assumed his responsibility as the redeemer of God's elect, as the redeemer of God's family. He, re he assumed this position. He bore it well. And our sin is not his fault, but he took responsibility for it. And in dying on the cross, he bore our sin, even though he had committed no sin. Here's the gospel. For Naomi, she imagined that marriage to Boaz would be the answer to all of their problems. And in a very practical sense, she was very right. And for us, the same is true. That marriage to Christ is the answer for all of our problems. Not by any merit of our own, nothing that we can do. We are needy people. Martin Luther died, and as he died, he, he opened up his hand, and a little piece of paper was in his hand, and written on that paper, it said, we are beggars, this is true. To have that mentality of we come to Christ needing him, and he doesn't size us up. He doesn't sit back and make us do some tricks. He tells us to open up our cloak, and he, sh and he heaps on us blessing upon blessing. He gives us himself. Boaz's stature, his influence, is, is a huge part of this story. Because if you look at the men in chapter 1, you'll see that these men, he compares it, the, the, the honor of Boaz and the men in chapter 1, these men failed. These men did not have the position. They didn't have the resources. They didn't have the resolve to be all that, that these women needed. But Boaz was, and this is the story of our Redeemer, that Christ compares ourself with our lack of resolve. He compares himself to all the things that we run to in life and say, these things are inadequate. These things are going to let you down. These things are not going to give you everything you need. But I am here, and I am giving you good news. Trust in me. I will supply you everything that is lacking. He is supreme in all of creation, and in him there is nothing lacking. And we will be confident, we can be confident that he will free, freely give us everything we should ever need. And so we learn to trust in him 
as our Redeemer. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Thank you.